Welcome to the Semper Reformata podcast, spreading the word and contending for the faith. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7. In whom, in Christ, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, wherein he hath appointed, bounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. And the words that I want to leave with you this evening are in verse 9 and verse 10. We're looking at the mystery of God's will. And God does have a plan for your life. I know that that has become a kind of a trait saying motto in evangelicalism. They will tell someone that God has a wonderful plan for your life and hope that that will in some way draw them to salvation. That's not the gospel. But God does have a plan for us. And that plan that he has for you and for me is worked out within the overall plan and purpose of God for the whole of time and for the whole of the universe. So what is the will of God? People will very often simply personalize this, and they will say, what is the will of God for me? But God's plan and God's will is far greater than that. And on this, in this passage, we're going to see that God's will has already been revealed to us. We do not need to ask what it is. We are told here, what is God's will. That's what we're going to look at for a few minutes this evening. And the first thing that we notice is that God's will is called a mystery, wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, verse 9, having made known unto us the mystery of his will. Now, why does Paul call God's will a mystery? Well, the Greek word mysterion is used by Paul, I'm told, some 16 times in his epistles. In Ephesians, he uses it six times. And in the text that we're examining, it's used. In Ephesians 3, he states that God has made known to him the knowledge of Christ. In Ephesians 3 and 4, he restates that. In Ephesians 3 and 9, he uses the term again to refer to the preaching of the gospel among the Gentiles. In Ephesians 5 and 32, he compares marriage between the relationship between a husband and wife in marriage as being similar to the relationship between Christ and the church. And he calls that 
a great mystery. And then finally in Ephesians 6 and verse 19, he talks about the mystery of the gospel. And in every case, he uses exactly the same word. So we must understand it. So what is the mystery of the will of God? We're told here, there's no mystery. It's been revealed to us. He has told us, he has made known unto us, verse 9, the mystery of his will. God's will is something that God has revealed to those who are his, something that we could never know by any other means. He has revealed his will to us clearly and plainly in his word, and he has stated it clearly here in Ephesians chapter 1. In fact, last time we looked at this passage, we noticed that God transforms us by his grace. Do you remember? Looking at verse 7, we're told there, rather in verse 6, that he has made us accepted in the beloved. And then he tells us in verse 7 what that means. In whom we have redemption, through his blood, so we are redeemed by Christ through the shedding of his blood. We have the forgiveness of sins. And then in verse 8, he has abounded toward us, given us wisdom and prudence. And we explored that just a little. And now we see that that prudence includes the revelation of God's will, God's purpose. As a Christian, we ought to know what God's overall purpose in history is. It is stated quite clearly. In the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ. Before we go on to that, there's one more thing we should note. God's will is about doing what is pleasing to him. God's will, God's purpose, being fulfilled in history, is pleasurable and brings glory to God. So it's according to the good, to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself. God purposes and plans and carries out and brings to fulfillment that which brings him pleasure. Now, how does God derive pleasure from seeing his will brought to, brought about? Well, we find the answer to that question in verse 10. Here's the second thing we have to note. That God's will, his revealed will, is to unite all of his creation in Christ. That's why we say that God's will is a mystery that has been revealed to us, to his people. You go out into the street and ask the average man or woman what is going to happen in the future. They might have different theories. They might have different ideas. They might not even think that God is bringing about his purpose in this created universe, but he is. That's revealed to us in his word. 
that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, when the end of this time comes, God will gather together in one all things which are in Christ. Look at the phrase, gather together, in your Bible for a moment. It's a seriously interesting translation of one single Greek word, Greek verb, anakephaleu. And the word is based on the root word, kephalus. Now, if you've ever been involved in medical knowledge or practice, if you've been a nurse or a doctor or something along those lines, you will know that that word always refers to something happening in the head. Cephalus. Anakephaleu just simply means by the head or through the head. So the authorized version here translates this, he might gather together. That isn't terribly literal. It's not wrong. It's not uh, a mistranslation in any way, but a literal rendition of rendition of the Greek text would say that God is going to head up all things in Christ to bring all things under the headship of Christ. That is God's will. Let's pause for a wee minute. Quite a few years ago, we were, my wife and I, Jeanette and I, were in the United States of America. We've only ever been there three times. And the only reason I've ever been in the United States of America is to attend the annual convention of the Christian Booksellers Association there. And it's strange, when you go there, you arrive on a Saturday, generally, and the convention in those days, I don't know what happens now, it's 20 years ago, but... The convention opened on Monday morning, so on the Lord's Day, they provided worship services for you to attend. And you could choose which worship service you wanted to attend. You could go to a Roman Catholic worship service, or you could go to a Pentecostal worship service, or you could go to a Reformed worship service. And of course, me, back in those days, being a minister in a Pentecostal church, I went to the Reformed worship service, as you would expect. And afterwards, I was privileged to be introduced to one of the publishers of one of the world's biggest publishing companies of Reformed literature. And the gentleman who introduced me, I, I, I can't, the, the man, the man who I was introduced to, he's so memorable that I can't even remember his name. A giant in the world of Christian book selling. And the conversation went something like this. Let's call him Mr. Jones. Mr. Jones, this is Mr. Jones, who is the head of Big International Publishing Inc. And Mr. Jones, this is Bob McAvoy, who is the head of, uh, Absolutely nothing at all. My wife said to me afterwards, were you not a bit annoyed when he said that? No, not at all. 
Mr. Jones has hundreds of people working for him all over the world. <laughs> Who's working for me? Absolutely nobody. We owned a Christian bookshop at that time, or we ran a Christian bookshop at that time that had like four employees working part-time, and two of them were unsalaried. Dozens of people under him, hundreds. Me? No. Headship is authority. He was the head of a giant corporation. It was about leadership. It was about reverence. It was about people giving him respect. It was about people who obeyed his words. Now, what God's plan is for all of eternity is to bring all things under the headship, under the authority of Christ. It is God's will. It is his good pleasure and purpose to do that. Why would he do that? Well, because Christ is the head of his church already. It is God's purpose ultimately to unite every believer from every age under the headship of Christ. Right now we're separated. The church is visible and invisible. The church is militant and triumphant. But one day, every true believer, everyone who already has Christ as their head, who is under his headship, will be gathered together under him. You know, we have a wonderful privilege. We are the body of Christ. At the ascension, Christ took our humanity, resurrected human flesh into heaven. There is a man in heaven, a man with real human flesh, a sure guarantee to us that when we, that we can go there too as resurrected human beings with resurrected human flesh, a guarantee, a pledge, There is already one of us in glory. Our head is in heaven. And one day we will be there too. In that sense we already are. Paul wrote Ephesians 2, 4 to 6. Let me summarize it for the sake of time. God hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He is our head right now but more apparently in the future. But look at one more thing here. There are distinct references here, not just to the church, but to creation. That he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth. Let me suggest to you, this world was created to bring glory to Jesus. To be under his headship and authority. It was designed by him for that distinct purpose. And the Bible tells us that one day, perhaps soon, everything in this world will be destroyed. Remember that passage in Second Peter. That the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. God is going to bring this created world to an end. And 
Peter wants us to be happy about that. In fact, to look forward to it with great anticipation. He tells us in verse 12 that we are to look for and hasting unto the coming of the day of the Lord. It can't come quick enough for us. God is going to destroy the world and we look forward to that with great anticipation. But why? Why would we want to see this present world destroyed? Here's why. Because everything in it is superficial and perishing. Everything in this world is already broken and it cannot be fixed despite the best efforts of mankind despite the agenda of those who think that they can save the planet they're obsessed with it aren't they they talk constantly about the net zero agenda that'll drive future generations into despair they plan to have you living in an eco-pod in a 15-minute smart city where you won't be allowed to use a car and the countryside will be rewilded back to a wilderness and the farming of beef and sheep and pigs will be phased out and you'll be fed on laboratory-created proteins and insect-derived foods and you know all of that is totally futile because this world is falling apart. It is laboring under the burden of the fall, under the sinfulness of everything. It is deeply cracked and broken and groaning. It's waiting a future day when it will be purged of its futility and restored to its original purpose. Turn back with me to the book of Romans chapter 8, to that familiar passage. Romans chapter 8 and verse 9. I know you've read it before, but it bears reading again. Romans chapter 8, verse 19 rather. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. You see, this created universe is waiting for something. Waiting for the day when it will become apparent who God's people are. And the Lord returns. Verse 20. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly. But by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope, because the creature itself shall also be delivered. The creation around us, this created world, shall also be delivered from the bondage of corruption, which it is in at the minute. This world is corrupt. My goodness, if you haven't noticed that this week, when would you ever be convinced of it? What have we seen? We've seen the Grammys. We've seen the, the display of satanic... Uh, religion openly displayed on display for the whole world to observe it we say men dressed as women women dressed as men what have we seen this week we've seen the church of England accepting blessings of same sex marriages 
calling God by gender-neutral pronouns. Allegedly at church. That's not all. This week has been a satanic nightmare. You never believe that this world is under the sway of the devil. This week should have shown you the creature itself shall be delivered, says Paul, from the bondage of corruption. This corrupt world. Listen. Into the glorious liberty of the children of God. It's coming. Verse 22. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body, for we are saved by hope. Now there you are. One day God's going to destroy this world. Peter describes it vividly. Paul describes its purpose. And he will make it all over again. And there will be a new heaven and there will be a new earth in which righteousness will prevail. And the saints of God will dwell in peace and serenity for all of eternity. Paul puts it like, Peter rather puts it like this. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Christ's headship repudiated in Adam, regained and proclaimed openly in Christ. So here's our text in Ephesians. God will gather all things together. He will bring together everything in this world under the headship of Christ. Universally, the living and the dead saints, the earthly things and the heavenly things, our our eternal life ahead of us is not as some sort of disembodied souls floating round in some spiritual state. We're going to have human flesh and blood resurrected from the grave, dwelling in a new heaven and a new earth with Christ our head, our Savior, and our Redeemer. And on that day, Jesus will be Lord of all. And every knee shall bow, even those who have rejected him, and those who are cast away from him, and those who are in a lost eternity. Every knee shall bow, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, as Paul says, so that in all things he will have the preeminence. God has revealed his will to us. It is to gather together all things. Christ, your unsaved neighbor, may not know that. But for us, the mystery has been revealed. And we see our lives as part of the ongoing unfolding 
purpose of God, that in all things Christ will be glorified. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, please help to make it better known by opening the podcast app on your phone or mobile device. Then, search for The Semper Reformata Podcast. Subscribe and give it a 5-star rating. See you next time.